We are again blessed, are we not, to assemble and to gather in the way that we are. And as mentioned earlier, we're certainly thankful for the presence of each and every individual. Those who remember, as we were encouraged this morning for the 530 service tonight, and, and certainly invested that part of their day to come together even as we are at this moment. As you probably have already noticed, we are going to do another installment of our questions and answers this evening. We, of course, do these lessons from time to time. This is the fourth one this, this current calendar year. James 1 verse 5, it seems to me, sets at least a, a good appreciation as to our theme. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God who giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. It is all of our understandings that the Word of God promises that it has the answers to the questions you and I would wish to know the answers to. And so tonight we're going to look at several questions that have been posed. And as always, if you have additional questions or if something is unclear, don't hesitate to reword it or perhaps I just didn't understand everything that, that perhaps was intended in the nature of that question. You may notice on that slide at the bottom, perhaps we could begin then like this, Study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It is our goal to rightly divide the marvelous and wonderful word of God. As you'll notice at the top of that slide, you then choose the subjects for the nights like this one. All of these particular questions are based on ones you've asked. None of them are my own. In fact, it's kind of my approach. I'll never ask my own questions. If I want to do that, I'll just build a whole sermon around it and, of course, do that at one of our other times. Our first question is a short one, but it reads like this. What does the Bible teach about dancing? Dancing? What does the Bible teach about dancing? That's certainly a good question. As always, all of these questions are particularly good in that they, of course, are someone wishing to know something about what the Bible has to say on a particular subject. None of us need to be reminded that dancing, it would seem, is becoming more and more popular with each passing year. Think about the number of television shows currently that center, in many ways, around modern dancing. Dancing with the Stars, or what about America's Got Talent, often many of those particular acts or performances will involve, in one way or another, dancing. That being said, you may notice then, may I say it isn't just in far distant places like what would appear on the television screen. It is really a very prominent and very oft-occurring matter in this day and time. Now, there was a long time for which it wasn't that unusual for high schools, perhaps, to sponsor some kind of dance. Then the time came, middle schools were doing it. So you had sixth graders and seventh graders, you know, those about, oh, 11, 12, 13 years old, and now it's elementary schools. It isn't that unusual to see second graders, third graders, so these who are seven years old, eight years old, they are being asked and encouraged to dance. We need to be mindful. If the Bible does say matters concerning this, we need to be very much aware that our youngsters seemingly are being faced with this at earlier and earlier ages. About the middle of that slide, you'll notice that about 27 times in the King James Bible, the word dance 
or one of the various tenses relating to it actually occurs. Now certainly we'll take just a moment, look at a few of them, but let me begin like this one. Maybe you and I should at least be aware of the fact the Bible uses the word dance in two different senses. Now that'll be a key matter for us in our right dividing of the Word of God. There is one sense as in Exodus 15 verse 20, as well as in Judges 11 verse 34. On these instances, for instance in the first one, you may recall that after the children of Israel had passed through the Red Sea, wasn't it true there that Miriam led the women in what the Bible calls dances? Now clearly we have thus a circumstance in which there were women and it would seem that they danced with the full approval of God. Something similar happened in Judges 11 where there you may remember Jephthah's daughter. Right before, of course, the things occurred to her that was due to her father's vow. You may recall there was again ladies, women only, who were dancing. For that reason, you and I today then may appreciate that there really is a time to dance. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 again says there's a time for it, but what kind of dancing does that particular passage encourage? What kind of dancing does it approve? May I suggest it might be identified like this. A dance of celebration in which a person's body undergoes some kind of movement. It would seem to me we are rather familiar with this. After an athletic team, say the five members of a girls' basketball team, after they've just vi enjoyed victory, maybe they're at the center of the court, they jump around one with another celebrating the victory that was just recently, of course, theirs. It would appear that kind of dancing is not in any way wrong. We have a circumstance where these who are of the same gender, admittedly, they are thus undergoing a kind of bodily movement, but it's more celebratory. There's nothing licentious about it. For that reason, you may notice at the bottom, there's a different kind of dancing the Bible identifies. This one I've tried to identify like this. It is more in line with what you and I would perceive and recognize as the modern dance. In particular, males and females together moving their bodies rhythmically to music. May we already go ahead and say that the Bible does not approve. That kind of dancing, you see, is such that the Bible has much more to say about it. In Exodus 32, 19, this appears to have been the kind of activity taking place there. It's centered around the golden calf and the people were dancing. And they were doing so with great disapproval from God. In Matthew 14, 6, what kind of dancing was taking place there? You may remember Herod greatly enjoyed this kind of dancing where you may recall that this lady, this woman, rather sensuously danced in his presence, undergoing kinds of movements in various ways, drawing great pleasure in the mind, apparently very much lustfully, in the mind of Herod. For that reason, perhaps more ought to be said about this. And so let's develop it perhaps along this line. If it's true, and it certainly appears to be so, that the Bible makes a distinction between these various dances, let's go ahead and observe then, according to the New Testament, what are some of the issues 
that surround this kind of dancing that the Bible labels as wrong. Notice it produces lust. The kind of dancing that we're saying that the Bible condemns is one that is part and parcel of an attitude of encouraging lustfulness. That might be defined like this, an intense longing in such a way that there's craving, enthusiasm, and eagerness with an idea, of course, of sexual overtones. Look at these details. I've already mentioned the one in Matthew 14, 6. This is the one that ultimately led to the losing of the head of John the Baptist. This kind of dance was particularly sensual, particularly filled with those rhythmical movements, encouraging attributes of lustfulness. One of the things that every male, and for that reason every female as well, needs to understand is that God, of course, made males, for the most part, very visually stimulated. And so to see a woman very much immodestly clad, moving in a rather seductive and sensual way, it leads to the kind of thoughts the Bible would label as lustful. Thoughts which, quite frankly, are going to be seen as lascivious in just a moment. Another detail might be this one. That word lasciviousness, as it identifies unbridled sexual desire, and notice it's the thought at which this matter is approaching. Is it any wonder in Titus 2 verse 12 that we are rather strongly urged and reminded? The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, there's our word, it is the Word of God that admonishes us to deny that kind of thing. Although the world parades it, condones it, even encourages it, the person of God must realize those kinds of thoughts are wholly improper. And therefore, one final verse in 1 Peter 2.11 reminds us that those worldly lusts are such that we must abstain from them. That's what makes going to the prom so wrong. Because here again you take this boy and girl who are in many ways at the height of their sexual considerations and you place them, the girl most of the time, immodestly dressed, put them in a dark room and let them dance very seductively. And you don't think any lustful thoughts are going to come out of this? And you don't think that any further activities in the evening or otherwise may be encouraged? Certainly you and I must be very naive not to think along those lines. For that reason, one final thing. The Word of God encourages one and all to flee, not tolerate, not condone, not have consideration or association with, but to flee these things. You run and you exit as quickly as possible. Don't put yourself in a circumstance if you have anything to do with it, such that these kind of things will take place. The thoughts, though, continue here. I mentioned a word a moment ago, the word lascivious. If you would be turning with me to Galatians chapter 5, we actually find that word appearing in the text before us here. Galatians chapter 5. 
I'd like to read this list that's usually known as merely the works of the flesh. And it says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That's one of those rather famous lists which the inspired apostle has compiled. And we aren't left to wonder, those who do these things, he says, can't go to heaven like this. Now, we have no questions about many of them. We know what adultery is, and we know what murder is. But did you note the fourth word in the list? Reading through that list, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. Whatever that is, it clearly is displeasing to God, and it will cause one to lose his or her soul, may I ask. What is lasciviousness? To help us out, I have actually provided the Greek definition. That is to say, that original definition for that word appearing in the Greek text at this location. Wanton manners as filthy words, indecent bodily movements, unchaste handling of males and females. That from a well-respected Greek lexicographer. Did you notice in that list, indecent bodily movements typically, of course, set to music, but the handling of males and females in a way promoting this kind of thing. Would it not be fair to say modern dancing fits that definition to a T? Thus, it's lascivious. And you and I would not only wish ourselves to understand that, but to encourage it surely in the mind of others. Now, I would not for a moment say that a seven-year-old would understand what lasciviousness is. But one is instilling in that little boy or girl the kind of thoughts such that seven years later they ask, well, I danced back then. It certainly wasn't wrong then. What's wrong with it now? We ought not be embedding in their heart a matter of thinking that would lead to questions later on about what would represent godliness. Let's go on in our study. What about the influence attached to the modern dance? That is to say, could one say that this activity encourages spirituality? It encourages nearness to God. It encourages a wholesome viewpoint and a mind that is pure. Could it be said that the modern dance encourages all of that? We surely would have to be mighty naive to agree with that statement. Consider this. As we noted earlier, typically the kind of locations and the kind of ways that it occurs. Certainly as such that there's an encouragement of what the devil would appreciate strongly as lewdness and licentiousness. We may even turn the question to this point. Suppose there were an individual who were strong enough in spirit such that he or she might be able to dance and not allow these thoughts to occur. What about your partner? What about anyone else that may be watching? Are you sure their thoughts are not moved in the wrong direction? Paul said, even in regard to eating meats offered to idols, if it make my brother stumble, I'll eat no meat as long as the world stands. 1 Corinthians 8.13 
Therefore, if it's going to cause someone else potentially to stumble, you and I must recognize the possibility of that influence that's so hurtful and so wrong. Three things left on the page. We've looked a little bit at dancing so far in light of those matters that are used to describe it. But 2 Peter 3.18 says, Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Does this activity encourage a greater knowledge of the Word of God? Encourage a greater nearness to God and purity of heart? Certainly it doesn't. For that reason, we close the slide with a conclusion. Dancing is a worldly activity that encourages impurity. A worldly activity that encourages an emphasis upon the sensual aspect of the human body and this activity that heightens it. And therefore we would say the Bible condemns that kind of dancing. On to question two. Question two. Reads like this. Suppose an elder divorces and remarries. Can he continue to serve as an elder? Now that again is a very good question. Prompted perhaps in part by the question and answers that we had last time. Several of those questions you might remember at least centered around the behavior of elders, the qualifications of elders, and what happened, let's say, if an elder's wife passed away. Some of those considerations led to this one. Again, suppose that an elder, it's not that his wife dies, but that he and his wife suffer a divorce, and the elder remarries. Can he continue to serve as an elder? Several things are worthy of being noted, and I've just tried to be brief in most of them. First of all, might we ask it this way? First of all, if an elder becomes unfaithful to his wife, so he is the one that recognizes the guilty party. He has become unfaithful to the marriage. And he, of course, pursues the divorce. Then you and I must overwhelmingly say, based on the Word of God, that man has done a sinful thing. The Word of God testifies there's only one cause for a divorce. And, of course, that's the sexual... Uh, Sin on the part of one's mate. Here he's the one at fault, not her. He has no right to file for the divorce. According to 1 Corinthians 7 verse 10, God says, do not put her away, and yet that's the very thing he did. That man's in sin. He, he would not be able to serve, even if he remarries as an elder, obviously. But the second part of it, suppose it's the elder's wife. Suppose she becomes unfaithful to the marriage. You then recognize as an innocent party that man could put her away. And in fact, he would be eligible to remarry. We are thus reminded in 1 Corinthians seven thirty nine that he should marry, of course, in the Lord. It would be the will of God. He marries someone who could encourage and help him make it to heaven in the same way he could help that, that next lady do that. So she would have to be a person eligible to marry. But you'll notice if he then were to marry her, we could then ask this question, would he be able to serve again as an elder? Now presumably, of course, during the course of that time that he had no spouse, he would have stepped down from the eldership. 
An elder needs to be a married man. But our question is, after he's married again, married this, this uh, second woman, would he now be able to again be put in the position of an elder? Well, I've tried to state what it would appear to be the matter of import. He is still the husband of one wife. He still meets the qualifications of the circumstance of 1 Timothy chapter 3. I would offer two strong elements of consideration, and certainly a congregation would wish to keep these in mind. First of all, there could be children coming from that, from that other woman. One would have to be mindful of the family circumstance. After all, if those children are of sufficiently young age, this man would need to have them in subjection. He would need to be regarded and to be appreciated as the one leading that household. If those children are unwilling to follow him, if they're unwilling to acknowledge him, that certainly could pose a serious challenge. Not only that, the Word of God has something to say to the congregation. Obey your elders. If these kinds of circumstances lead to a sufficient number of questions that they are unwilling to follow Him, even if all the other qualifications are met, it would seem unwise for Him to be installed in the position of an elder. Now all of those things lead us to question number three. For this one too is one that somewhat relates to this same one. So question number three. This question reads as follows. Suppose an elder, I'm sorry, can an elder continue to serve if his children do not remain faithful to God? Again, our question, can an elder continue to serve if his children do not remain faithful to God? This one perhaps will take some chronological consideration because it seems the Word of God highlights all of these aspects as well. Let's begin at the top. First of all, in 1 Timothy 3, verse 4, it does say that one of the aspects of qualification for a man to serve as an elder is that, and I put it in quotation marks, he ruleth well his own house. In other words, this man is such that his wife, his children give the evidences that they have been led in a way that's faithful, prompted, no doubt, in part by the leadership of that man. That provides an evidence that he can lead the congregation in the way they ought to go, namely toward heaven. But on the other side of that coin, if a man's children, for example, give evidence they weren't led correctly, then that should, of course, say much about it, it would seem that man is not fit then to lead the church either. That's the very matter that God utilized to describe it. But the second point on the slide then is this. Not only does that impact the way one views the man, look at how it's, what it says about the children. Borrowing the wording of Titus 1 verse 6, one of the qualifications is, "...faithful children not accused of riot or unruly." It's clear then, isn't it, that the circumstances regarding a man's children will have a great bearing on whether or not he will be qualified to serve as an elder. Now that next point is then a clear one. When a child is at home, there are many attributes touching faithfulness which are mandated by the parents. Dad and mom will make him or her come to church services. 
they'll make that child, you attend vacation Bible school. You see, when the child is young, many of the matters of the child's behavior will be determined by the parents. Be it attendance at services, the behavior while at services, the way in which other attributes of conduct are to be seen. A parent may thus say to a daughter, you're not going out of this house wearing that. Because again, it indicates an element of immodesty. So you see, the father and mother dictate and determine much about what relates to faithfulness at that point in life. But of course, the next statement is this. What about when the time comes that that child advances to an age in which he or she no longer lives beneath the roof of the parents? Now the attributes of faithfulness are their own. What they choose to wear, the places they choose to go, whether or not they attend services or not, then is their decision. Thus it would seem rather easy enough to say, as I have attempted at least to do there, it leads us to note, as far as determining whether a man would be, of course, qualified by virtue of these statements to serve as an elder, you at least must look to some degree of that time after the children have left the house of the parents. Because it really isn't a fair litmus test if only you look while they lived at home. Then they were told what to do, and it was expected they'd follow it. But when they have to make their own choices, then you can see the indelible imprint of the faithfulness and the leadership and the guidance of the parents. And so I've tried to summarize, it would seem, on the next slide, one way to view it. If upon looking then at the behavior of a child, if this particular child, son or daughter, is such that they really didn't remain faithful hardly at all beyond the time they left the parents' house, I'd suggest that man is not qualified to serve as an elder. There is no evidence that he ruled his household in such a way that the imprint of Christianity was placed in the heart of those children. But on the other hand, you and I must at least honor the fact that the day of judgment is a personal matter. That child won't be judged based only on what dad or mom did, and neither will the parents be judged on what the child may or may not have done. Therefore, that second statement is this. If, of course, a child's behavior was reasonable and faithful while he or she was at home, and then that child was faithful for at least a considerable amount of time after leaving the house, and then the child becomes unfaithful, it would seem then that there's evidence that that child was directed in the right way, that child did appreciate what it was like to live a Christian life and knew what it was like to be faithful, but then that child made his or her own choice and chose to do what was wrong, choosing to move in the direction opposite faithfulness. It would seem then that that man would still be a faithful candidate to serve as an elder. Clearly there's some objective consideration here, but there's also some subjective one. A congregation would have to decide for themselves. Has there been ample evidence in the life of this man's children, that he led them in the correct way and that they followed it, understanding only later 
that their own decision led them astray. I hope that that was somewhat helpful in regard to that particular question. It would seem that putting the matters in Titus and 1 Timothy together would lead to those very conclusions we've just reached. There are several more questions that we have, but I chose to split the sermon, and so we'll take up question four on the next occasion. So we'll close our lesson at that point tonight, concluding it like this. We had a question dealing, of course, with elders. In fact, had two questions dealing with their qualifications and one question about dancing. Worldliness is an ongoing matter that we certainly battle. We're thankful for the leadership of the Word of God, the guidance it provides us, and our strong desire to rightly divide it. We have other questions, as I mentioned, that will come up before us next time. Some of those, too, very intriguing. I'd like to express a note of thanks to everyone who submitted questions. I always appreciate them, and I hope that we're able to do them justice using the Word of God as our guide. As we close this lesson tonight, I hope that is, if you and I have questions about our eternal salvation, please talk to one of these elders or myself. Talk to somebody before you leave this building tonight. You don't want to leave in a way in which you doubt whether you're saved or not. We are urged to know it, 1 John 5, 13, to know that you're saved. Didn't John say, Beloved, these things have I written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. If there's any one of us in a condition of doubt, please speak with one of our elders. Let them encourage you, study with you, have prayer with you, whatever might be necessary. But I would certainly say that we certainly should be thankful for the Word of God, for it gives us the answers. Tonight, if there's anyone that would wish to make a public response to the gospel's call of invitation, we would love to be of assistance to you. We'd love to help you in the way that would be appropriate and right. At this particular time, Brother Larry has announced this hymn of encouragement. And if anyone would wish to come at this moment, don't delay, but do it now. While together we stand and while we sing.